That's a hot mic. How are you guys doing today? You're, you're okay, right? Uh, I'll be available for grief counseling after the service if anybody needs to, you know. Um, you know, it's times like this, you know, when Broncos fans are wondering where God is, so I'm glad that you all came to church. Um, but, you know, that's what we're studying about today. It's all about providence. It's about where God is when bad stuff happens. So we still believe in God. You know, I was, wonder, I was thinking yesterday, I'm thinking, you know, I want to find out who is that one person who forgot to wear their Broncos jersey, like, or who like sat on the wrong seat of the couch and like jinxed the whole thing for all of us, you know? Um, so if I find that guy, just let me know. Uh, we want to pray for his soul. So, um, but let's go ahead and get into God's word. It's probably a little bit more profitable way to spend our time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are providential, Lord. We thank you for your great love for us, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you have chosen to dwell in your children, Lord. And we ask this morning, fill us with your spirit. Fill this place with your presence, Lord, and fill it with joy. Lord, we want to have a spirit of celebration as we approach your word, as we come to these holy things, and as we study about who you are and what you've done in our lives. And Lord, with uh, such an obscure uh, text today, Lord, we ask that you would give us insight into this and, and really show us what it is that you want to speak to us through this, Lord, because we believe that all of your word is God-breathed and profitable for our ed edification, for training us in righteousness. So Lord, we ask that you would do that work this morning in Jesus' name. Lord, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive in Jesus' name, amen. So we are studying the life of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis. We've actually been studying through the entire book of Genesis. We just picked it up uh, last Sunday again, starting with the life of Joseph. This is the last of the great sagas that makes up the book of Genesis. And, uh, you know, sandwiched right in the middle of the story of Joseph is one of the craziest, just strangest stories in the Bible. I'm sure as Lisa was reading this text today, you were thinking, this is a bit odd, right? This is kind of weird. And you know what? We actually left out some of the even weirder parts that she didn't read, but we're going to cover them here. You know, it's one of the strangest stories in the Bible. It's just odd. It's this story of Judah and his crazy messed up family, and he impregnates his daughter-in-law, and it's a big mess. You know, this is one of those chapters where, you know, you got this illustrated children's Bibles. You're not going to find Genesis chapter 38 in your illustrated children's Bible. I've been, I looked for it, but I just couldn't find it. It. We're not going to have any coloring pages for your kids, no flannel graphs of uh, Genesis chapter 38. You know, when you read this story, you can't help but wonder, why in the world did this story need to be included in the Bible? I mean, we only got so much stories that can fit in the Bible here. Would we really be missing a whole lot if this story had been left out? Or at least not, we don't need all the gruesome details, right? What is this story in here for? Now, in order to properly understand Genesis 38, we need to remember that Genesis, right, it's written in a very artistic way. This isn't just, you know, a straight, dry recording of history. When God inspired this book, he inspired it in such a way that it would be a literary masterpiece, that it would captivate us for generations, right, that it would draw us in, that people would go over this text for thousands of years, and they would continually be amazed by the depth of it, by the layers of the message that's contained in here. So you see, the purpose of this story to understand it, you have to understand how it fits into the whole of Genesis. 
And it has two important functions. The first function is very straightforward. It tells us the family line of the Messiah. That's what we've been following throughout Genesis. Jesus is actually going to descend from Judah, and specifically, he is going to descend from Judah's son, Perez, who is born out of this whole crazy mess that happens in chapter 38. Now, that's one reason why this story's in here. But if you think about it, right, it, it could have been done without telling us all the details, right? It could have just been said, then Judah had a son named Perez, and the end. Now back to Joseph. But why all the gruesome details? Well, here's why. Because like in so many places in Genesis, what you have is that these stories play off of each other. There's juxtapositions, there's contrasts, there's parallels, and that's exactly what we have here. And that's why I really wanted to teach Genesis 38 and 39 together. Because in Genesis 38 and 39, these two chapters, they really do play off of each other. They, they're juxtaposed, they, they contrast and parallel with each other. In these two chapters, what we have is two stories of two brothers. And both of them are raised in a believing family. And now both of them get out of their house, away from the community of believers, away from the accountability to walk with God. They don't have anybody encouraging them to walk in the ways of the Lord. And they both face temptation to sin sexually, sexual immorality. But the one brother, Judah, he gives in to this temptation and sins, whereas the other brother, Joseph, resists the temptation and doesn't sin. But both of these stories also, here's the last final parallel, is that they both have a surprise ending, right? The brother who sins is blessed and becomes one of the ancestors of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. And the brother who doesn't sin gets lied about, loses his job, and gets wrongfully imprisoned. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Isn't it surprising? Shouldn't it work the other way around? Shouldn't it be that the guy who does the wrong thing is the one who suffers and the guy who does the right thing is the one who prospers? Wouldn't that be fair? Isn't that how we assume that life should work? That bad people get bad things and good people get good things? But the Bible tells us and our own experience tells us that life is a lot more nuanced than that. It's not so simplistic as that. And the reason why life is not so simplistic, the reason why life is more nuanced than that is because there are a few things that exist in this world. One of the things is sin. There is sin in this world. That's why life is not so simple. But there's even beyond that, there's an even greater reason. Because there is God. Because there is a personal God who is actively at work in the world. He's actively involved in our lives and he's acting both miraculously and providentially. God is a God of love and grace. He's a God who created us so that we would know him, so that through him we could have, so we could have a relationship with him, so we could know him. And he is above all things. He is working in all things. He is working out his purposes and his plans through what sometimes seems to us, from our perspective, to be chaos here on human, in human life here on planet Earth, right? So as we look at Genesis chapters 38 and 39, we're going to be talking about the surprising realities of godliness and grace. And specifically what that means is this. The surprising reality of godliness and grace is this. Godly living will not guarantee you an easy life. That's what this story shows us. And grace, by definition, 
is undeserved. It's unearned. It's unmerited favor. You know, you could say this. There is not a single page of the Bible. There's not a single story of the Bible that does not give us a contrast between traditional religion and the gospel. There's not a single story that doesn't give you a contrast between traditional religion and the gospel. What do I mean by that? Traditional religion says this. Here are the rules for right living. Now, if you follow these rules, then God will bless you and you will have a good life, right? But essentially what we see here in Genesis 38 and 39 is that Judah is not godly. He doesn't live right, but he is blessed. And Joseph is godly. He, he does live right. He does live a godly life. But over and over, we read that God is with him and blessing him. But in spite of that, instead of his life being characterized by ease and comfort, his life is characterized by trials and injustice and people mistreating him and sinning against him. And that doesn't calculate, right? It doesn't fit into the formula of how people assume that life should work. That if you live a good life, then do the right things, then you will get good in return. The, the purpose of these stories is to show you the surprising realities of godliness and grace. And the reason these realities exist is, not, is because life is not ruled by karma. Life is not ruled by the forces of the universe. Life is ruled by a personal God who is actively involved in each of our lives working providentially. So let's look at the text. The first parallel that we see between Judah and Joseph in these chapters is this. They both grow up in this Christian home and then they leave home. Okay? So Joseph and Judah, they're sons from the same family. They're the sons of Jacob. Their great-grandpa was Abraham. Their grandfather was Isaac. Their dad was Jacob, also known as Israel. They come from this long line of people who are walking with God, people who live in covenant relationship with God. And, uh, and now they're both away from home. Joseph was taken away from home against his will. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. But Judah leaves home by his own choice. We read in the first verse, if you have your Bible, please follow along, of chapter 38, that Judah turned aside from his brothers and went off somewhere else. Now that's interesting. Um, for both of them, being away from home means that they're no longer in the community of believers. They're no longer amongst believers, amongst that community that's encouraging them to know God and walk with God. And what that means in our terminology is they have no accountability. There's no one there to encourage them, spur them on in their relationship with God. And that's a tough spot for anybody to be in. But notice that they respond to this situation differently. Joseph, throughout his story, he continues to cultivate this relationship with God. But Judah doesn't do that. Judah, we read in, in verse 1 there of chapter 38 and throughout the chapter, we read about this guy named Hira the Adulamite. Now this guy is bad news, okay? This is like uh, every time Judah hangs out with him, there's a lot of drama and a lot of trauma and bad stuff happens, right? I remember when I first became a Christian, I was, uh, I was only in high school, I was young, and I remember that um, I did what many Christians tend to do right? I had two groups of friends. I had my Christian friends and I had my non-Christian friends. You know, you're, does that sound familiar to anybody? Does that describe you at all, right? You got your Christian friends. These are the ones you go to Bible study with. You're, you know, you're in your community group. They keep you accountable. They tell you, hey, bro, that's sin. We shouldn't do that. 
And then you've got your other friends, right? Your, uh, let's just say they're the opposite of an accountability partner, right? They're the one who says, hey, bro, that's sin. Let's do that twice. You know what I mean? And Hira the Adulamite, let's just put it this way, he is not Judah's accountability partner. Judah doesn't have an accountability partner right now. He's just hanging out with this guy, this heathen guy. He's not walking with the Lord. He's not living in a way that pleases the Lord. It's just a bunch of sin and a bunch of folly that's going to cause him a lot of grief and sorrow because that's what sin does ultimately. And so what I'm saying is this, there are a lot of Christians who live this kind of double life. They have two groups of friends, the Christian friends and the non-Christian friends, and they behave differently depending which group of friends they're with. They talk differently, they act differently, depending on who they're hanging out with, and uh, they're kind of a completely different person depending on which group of friends they're with. And of course, they have to make sure these two groups of friends, at least this is what I did, you make sure that these two groups of friends never meet each other. Because if they did, it would be like the universe is colliding and everybody's going to realize that you're acting strange and something doesn't fit, right? They would be so confused. So I remember myself, this was the case with me as a young Christian. I remember realizing at one point that I couldn't continue to live this double life. I needed to make a decision about who I was going to be. And that doesn't mean that you stop being friends with people who aren't Christians, but it did mean for me that I chose that I'm going to act the same around my non-Christian friends as I do around my Christian friends because essentially that is the essence of integrity. Integrity is oneness, wholeness, it's undividedness. It's that saying, I am who I am. And you let the chips fall where they will. You know, essentially, I I, I like to put it this way as a kind of illustration. We need to ask ourselves, who am I? Am I a thermometer or a thermostat, right? A thermometer or a thermostat? Because a thermometer, what does it do? It goes into a room and it measures the temperature of the room and it adjusts accordingly. But a thermostat is different because a thermostat actually sets the climate in a place, right? It changes the climate in the place. It sets the temperature. And so ask yourself honestly, which one of these is more of you? Which one is your tendency? And and I don't say this as a word of condemnation by any means, more as a word of self-assessment and wisdom. Not all of us are thermostats, right? Some of us, we, we have a tendency to be more like thermometers, right? We just kind of adjust to whatever setting we find ourselves in. We kind of uh, change depending on the climate that we're in. You know, Jesus was a thermostat kind of person. We, we always read, you know, that Jesus, he spent time with prostitutes and sinners. Well, Judah also spent time with prostitutes and sinners, but in a different way, right? Because Jesus was able to hang out with the prostitutes and sinners because he was this thermostat type of guy. He went in there and he set the tone. He talked about the kingdom of God. He called people to repentance. Judah, when he hangs out with prostitutes and sinners, he doesn't talk about the kingdom of God. He just kind of conforms and he gets right involved in what they're doing. And so we need to ask ourselves, honestly, what is my tendency? Who do I tend to be like? Am I a thermostat or am I a thermometer? And if you are more of a thermometer, then that means that you need to choose to use a lot of wisdom and discernment with who you spend your time with and what situations you put yourself in. It's wisdom to know your weaknesses, to know your tendencies. 
So the other thing I would encourage you to do is not only question yourself, am I a thermometer or a thermostat? What situations are good for me? But the other thing is this, make a decision, a determination that you will not be a different person around unbelieving people than you are around believing people. Don't be a different person. Be confident in who you are in Christ. Don't ever be ashamed of him who was never ashamed to call you his own. Joseph was a person of integrity. Judah was not. So Judah gets hooked up with this ungodly crowd. He hangs out with, uh, you know, this uh, Adulamite guy. And he meets this girl who's also not a believer. They get together and they have three kids. Er, Onan, and Shelah. Which is a bummer of a name if you're a guy, right? Hey, what's your name? My name's Sheila. Nice to meet you. And nobody, yeah. And everybody's like, oh, okay, Sheila. Nice to meet you. So the, the next parallel between Judah and Joseph is that they're both faced with temptation in regard to sexual immorality. This is the second parallel. They're both faced with temptation in regard to sexual immorality. Here's the story of Judah. He has three sons. We didn't read the beginning of the chapter because I didn't want to subject Lisa to having to read that. But here's what happens. The oldest son, Er, he marries this woman named Tamar. Now, we don't get a lot of details on why, but it tells us that this man was so wicked that God actually just killed him. He didn't die of natural causes. The natural cause was God killed him. That's what it says in the text. He was a wicked man and God killed him. We don't know why. I assume that if he's wicked, that means that he's hurting other people and God is the protector of the weak. So the practice of that time was called levirate marriage. Now levirate marriage essentially means this. If a, it, this was something that was later included in the law of Moses, but it was common in all the cultures of that time. If a man dies without having an heir, without having a, a son or any children, then his brother would marry his widow and then they would have children and those children would count as the deceased man's children they would be heirs to the deceased man's you know uh, fortune and name and all of these things so that was the practice of the day that was what was supposed to happen here it was the law Onan knows this this is the second son so Judah gives this woman Tamar to his second son Onan now he knows this he knows that any child he fathers will not count as his own son so what does he do? He takes advantage of Tamar. Tamar had not wanted to marry Onan, per se, you know? She did not necessarily love this man, but she was willing to sleep with him because she wanted to get pregnant so she could have an heir for her deceased husband. And so what that means, here's Onan as an evil guy, you know, um, is that he's thinking, well, if she doesn't get pregnant, well, then she's going to keep sleeping with me because that's why she's sleeping with me in the first place. So I'm going to make sure that she doesn't get pregnant. He's using her. Uh, he's taking advantage of her. He doesn't love her. He's not treating her with respect. He's totally disrespecting her and using her in a selfish way. And what happened? God killed him too. Wow, this is not going well for this family. So how many guys are there today who do a similar thing to what Onan did? They lead women on with this kind of promise, with all these promises. They say these words that the women want to hear so that they can get them in bed. But they have no intention of committing to them. They're just selfishly using them. Have you ever seen that before? I've seen it happen before. A guy tells a girl that he loves her. He wants to be with her forever. Smooth words. He mentions marriage and f kids and a future. 
but all he really wants to do is sleep with her and he's just telling her what she wants to hear so he can get her in bed. Very common story these days, but keep this in mind. God killed this guy for doing that, okay? So that should really put the fear of God into the hearts of men around the world. Judah, the dad, right, he's left with this situation. He's got one son left, and he's starting to think, man, my kids are dropping like flies around this woman, Tamar. I got to put an end to this. So he says, I'm not going to give my youngest son to her because I don't want him to die too. Now, the law of that time required that he do that, but he has no intention of doing it. So he says, you go live with your dad for a while, and then someday I'll give you my other son uh, to marry you. Now, what Judah's doing is wrong, right? It's against the law. It is also unjust and unfair. It's leaving this widow without a husband, without a child. She is one of the most vulnerable people in that society. No one is going to marry her. She has no source of income. She has no one to take care of her when she gets old. So Judah is really doing a major disservice to this woman. He, he is really sinning against her by refusing to give his youngest son to her. So some time goes by and Tamar finally realizes that this is never going to happen. He's never going to give me the son as my husband. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands. She's going to get justice for herself. And this is probably going to end well, right? This usually ends really well when people take things into their own hands in the Bible. So sheep shearing season comes around. Now sheep shearing season is like Mardi Gras a couple thousand years ago, right? This was like the big party. Everybody's going wild and crazy. Uh, you know, it's Hebrews gone wild and everybody's making a bunch of money. It's Mardi Gras. And what is, who does Jacob call at Mardi Gras time? He calls Hira the Adulamite. This is like his drinking buddy. He's not an accountability partner. And he says, Hira, let's go have a crazy time. So at the same time, Tamar's realizing this is her one opportunity to get justice, right? To get what really is rightfully hers. So she dresses up like a prostitute, bad idea by the way, ladies, and, and stands by the side of the road, and along comes Judah. It's Mardi Gras, he's hanging out with his drinking buddy, and he sees a prostitute. So Judah goes over to her, and they start negotiating the price, and Judah's like, I forgot my wallet, I don't have any goats on me right now, maybe I could pay you later. And she says, yeah, but I'm going to need you to give me some collateral. So he, he gives her his staff, his cord, and his signet ring. Now, signet ring in that day, that is your way of identifying yourself. That's how you sign letters and stamps. This is kind of like a form of ID, right? This is like giving somebody your driver's license. So he sleeps with her. They go their separate ways, and Jacob tries to send payment to her so he can get his driver's license back, essentially, right? But she's nowhere to be found. So check out what happens a few months later. Judah finds out that Tamar has, is pregnant. She's been immoral. Can you believe this? What an outrage. She's been immoral. And so technically, she's still under his care, even though he's not caring for her. But, you know, that's convenient. She's under my care. Bring her here. We're going to execute her because she's been immoral. We're going to burn her at the stake because she has sinned. She's been immoral. She must be punished for this. How could she do such a thing? I mean, she's, she's betrothed to my youngest son. This is wrong. So they bring Tamar and, and they say, you know, what's going on? And she says, well, you know, I slept with this guy. Um, maybe you could help me to identify him. 
uh, you know, here's a staff that he gave me, and, and here's his cord, and oh, here's his driver's license. You know, it's this big ring with a big J on it. Like, hey, do you happen to know anybody named uh, Judah? Judah, yeah, do you know anybody by that name? Oh, that's you. Yeah, Judah is busted. He's been caught red-handed. He was going to burn this woman at the stake for her immorality, but he's just as guilty as she is. Now, that doesn't make what she did right, but it made Judah realize that he's feeling all this righteous indignation about this other woman's sin, but he's not dealing with his own sins at all. You know, I think that's true of most of us, right? We tend to want justice when other people sin, but when we sin, we expect mercy and grace freely. We get angry about other people's sins, but we don't think our sins are such a big deal. We, we're quick to excuse ourselves but slow to excuse others who sin against us you know it's been said that your sin always looks worse when you see it on somebody else we tend to be a lot like Judah now Joseph here he's faced with a very similar temptation here's a woman who's making advances at him making herself available to him and he has a temptation but Joseph resists the temptation he gets taken down to Egypt by the providence of God. Remember last week we talked about how the overarching theme of Joseph's life is the providence of God. He ends up in the house of this man named Potiphar who's the captain of the guard. Now, captain of the guard in English kind of sounds like uh, chief of security. It doesn't seem like that big of a thing. But captain of the guard, this is more like secretary of defense. This is a guy who answers directly to Pharaoh. So by the providential leading of God, Joseph ends up in this house. You know, the long and short of the story is that God is taking Joseph to the place where he will essentially be prime minister of Egypt so he can save many lives. But here's the thing. He ends up in this house. This guy, Potiphar, he's like secretary of defense. He's gone a lot. And his wife is there in the house with Joseph all the time. Joseph's kind of like a young Brad Pitt, you know. He's all muscular and hot. And this is why we don't watch Brad Pitt movies at my house, by the way. And uh, so what, is, what does she do? She gets super aggressive. She's coming on to him. Come on, sleep with me. And he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. That's sin. That's wrong. That's wrong. So one day, she just gets everybody out of the house and she grabs him and says, this is it, You're, we're doing this. And what does he do? He wiggles out of his clothes that she's hanging on to and he runs out of the house in his underwear, right? He's just running away. That is given in the New Testament actually as the prototype of how we should respond to temptation. Paul the Apostle says to the Corinthians, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Run away, run away. Don't negotiate, do what Joseph did, run away. To Timothy, Paul says the same thing. Flee youthful passions, don't negotiate, don't talk about it, don't think about it, just get yourself out of there as fast as you can. You know, Proverbs says that, that who can take fire in his lap and not be burned? Just flee it, run away, don't get burned. Now, what was the difference between Judah and Joseph? What made the difference in their lives? You know, that, that the one man was able to resist temptation, whereas the other man was not. Joseph exhibits this great self-control. Judah does not exhibit self-control. And I want to talk about this. What is the key to Joseph's self-control, and what is the key to us having self-control? 
You know, the text actually gives us a hint as to what the difference was here. When Potiphar's wife starts making these advances, how does Joseph respond? He says, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God? He doesn't say, how can I sin against my boss who's been so good to me? He says, how can I sin against God? Now that gives us some insight into the true nature of self-control. Most people believe that self-control is really a matter of the will. I must will, by my willpower, I must suppress the bad desires I have. And I look at my desires and I say, these desires will lead to problems in my life. So I suppress those desires. I'm not going to think about those things. I'm going to say no to myself. That's self-control, right? The will in charge of the heart, overriding the desires of the heart. But that's not what happens in this story. Joseph doesn't look within and suppress his desire for Potiphar's wife. What he does is he actually looks out to God to enhance his desire for God. And and here's here's what I think really illustrates really well how self-control works. Genesis chapter 29, Jacob and Rachel. Jacob falls in love with Rachel. Maybe you remember the story we studied a few months back. He wants to be with Rachel so bad. He wants to make her his wife so bad that he submits himself to seven years hard labor in order to be able to make her his wife. And at the end of it, we read one of the most beautiful lines in the Bible. It says that Jacob worked for seven years for Rachel, but they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. That's self-control, right? He submits himself to all this hard labor. He, he had many desires. He had a desire to take a vacation, take a break, not be the slave anymore. He had a lot of desires, but none of his desires was as great as his desire for Rachel. He wanted her more than he wanted all the other things. In other words, she was this one overmastering, this one supreme desire of his heart that put all his other desires in their proper place. That's the way that self-control works effectively. That's the key to effective self-control is that you need to have a Rachel. If you want to have self-control, you, can't, you, you can keep suppressing those desires, but after a while, you're going to get tired and the time will come when you become weak and you're not able to resist anymore. But to have effective self-control, the key is not to suppress desires, but to reorder your desires. The key is that if you want to have self-control really effectively, you need to have a Rachel. Self-control is not the will suppressing the desires, it's the reordering of the desires of your heart by giving yourself a one supreme desire that you want more than anything. That's what Joseph did here. He said, sure, I have physical desire to be with this woman, but there's something I want even more than that. I desire to walk with my God. He wanted God more than he wanted to sleep with this woman. That is the key to self-control. Again, if self-control is just you suppressing your desires and telling yourself, no, you can't do that, you won't be able to keep that up forever. The point will come when in a moment of weakness you won't have the strength to resist. But real effective lasting self-control doesn't come by suppressing your desires but by reordering your desires. In other words, we all need a Rachel. Now think about the self-control that Jesus showed. Jesus subjected himself 
to more than just slavery for seven years. Jesus subjected himself to much more than that. He was in this glorious place, being worshipped and praised 24-7, and he comes to this world, he's born as a, a baby in poverty, in a filthy place. He has to learn how to walk. He has to learn how to, you know, he do all of these things. It's a humiliating experience, really. And ultimately, he grows up, and, and he is rejected and despised, and then he goes to the cross where he suffers ultimately for us in our place. He had come with this ultimate goal of dying on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. But all along the way, he faces temptations to turn aside from it. Do you remember that? Jesus faces temptation in the wilderness. Satan comes and says, turn aside. I'll give you this. I'll give you that. You know, he tempts him. And truly, Jesus was tempted by these things. Even on the road to Jerusalem, he could have turned away. He didn't have to go. Up until the very last moment when they arrested him, he could have run away. He had the temptation to turn away from this thing which he had come for. But what kept him going? Why did he do it? How did he endure to the end? The reason was because of his love for us. Because of his desire to redeem us and make us his bride, to make us his own. That was stronger than his desire for comfort or anything else that he could have gained by turning away from that which he came for. In other words, he loved us. For the Father's sake, he loved us. And when you see him doing that for you, when you look to the cross, what you see is this, that you are his Rachel. You are that one supreme desire that he had that overrode all of his other desires, all of his other temptations. You are the reason he was able to endure because he loved you. And to the degree that you see that you are his Rachel, he will become your Rachel. If you see that his love for you was the reason that he endured, when that really sinks in that you see that you are his passion, then he will increasingly become your passion. Again, the key to self-control is, is not just to use sheer willpower to suppress desires. The key to self-control is to make God your Rachel, the one whom you love and desire more than anything else, that supreme love and desire that puts all other things in their place. The reason Joseph is able to say no to Potiphar's wife again and again is because there's something he wants more than her. There's something he wants more than just this physical gratification that lasts for a moment. He, he want, much more desires to have a relationship with God, a walk with God, and, and he looks to God and sees God's love for him and providential care for him, and it just causes him more and more, his heart to swell with this desire and this zeal and this passion for God. And I hope that the same will be true of you and I. That's why we take communion every Sunday, because we want to look to the cross that our hearts would be filled again. The third and final parallel that we see between these two stories is this. They both have a surprise ending. Judah walked away from the Lord. He's living in sin. He's sleeping with prostitutes. He's raising kids who disrespect women, who are so sinful that God has to put them to death. Tamar takes justice into her own hands and she becomes a prostitute and tricks her father-in-law into impregnating her. But that's not the end of the story, right? The end of the story, we didn't read this part either, is this. She has twins. She has two boys. And one of those boys, his name is Perez, he becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. 
God chose Judah. He chose this crazy story, the, the strangest story, perhaps in, in the whole Old Testament. And God associates himself with that. He says, this is the way that I will bring in the Messiah. Isn't that surprising? He not only chooses Judah, but he chooses to come through this whole debacle with Tamar and this injustice and this, this immorality. In the first chapter of Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus, you read that the, the name of Tamar, Jesus comes through Perez, the son of Tamar in Judah, a child conceived in sin, really. Why would God do that? Why would God choose Judah? Why would God come into the world through this kind of family, through this kind of messed up situation? He could have easily just come through Joseph, right? I mean, Joseph was like the perfect son. He could have easily come through Benjamin. Benjamin never really makes any mistakes. But God chose to make this messy story part of his story. And another part of the surprise ending is, is that Judah repents of his sin. Did you notice that in the last verse that we read? It says that he never touched Tamar again. That's a sign of repentance. He recognized his sin. He said, you are more righteous than I. In other words, I'm a sinner. And then he never touched her again. That's a sign of repentance. We see more signs of repentance. The next time we see Judah, guess where he is? He's back in the congregation of believers. He's back with his brothers. And he does one very surprising thing next time we see him. He offers to sacrifice himself to save his brothers. He's acting as a, as a picture of Jesus. And here's the point. Why would God choose to come through Judah and Tamar? Here's why. Because God wants to show us that there is room in his family for even the worst of us. For those who have been immoral, for those who have failed as parents, for those who have sinned sexually, for those who have been immoral, he wants to show us that if you will humble yourself before God, if you will repent of your sin, God's grace is big enough to save even the worst of us and bring us into his family and make us his family. It's been said this way, that grace is like water. It flows to the lowest part. That's what Judah represents, the grace of God flowing to the very lowest part. God's word says that this, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Judah doesn't deserve the grace of God. He doesn't deserve to be blessed in this way. He doesn't deserve for God to associate with him and show him favor in this extraordinary way by including him in the messianic line. But Judah humbles himself, and that's why he makes himself available for God's grace. He makes himself a recipient of God's grace because he humbles himself. The surprising reality of grace is that God does not bless us because we deserve it, or because we've earned it, because we've done all the right things, but he lavishes grace on those who are humbly submitted to him. That's what we see in the story of Judah. But the surprise ending of Joseph's story is that although Joseph was godly, and we read multiple times that God was with him, in spite of that, a bunch of really bad stuff happens to him over and over. He gets sold into slavery. He's betrayed by his own family, who were supposed to be believers, and now in refusing to sin by sleeping with this woman, she lies about him and he gets put in jail for something he didn't actually do. This isn't how we usually imagine God's blessing and favor and presence in our life looking like, right? People think, tend to think that a blessed life means it's a problem-free life. 
And if, if bad stuff happens to us, we lose our job or people treat us badly, and we start to ask, where is God right now? How, God, could you let this happen to me? But the surprising part of the story is this. God is right there. He's right there with Joseph. And rather than saving Joseph from these trials, he is saving Joseph through these trials. And all these bad things that happen to Joseph, they're happening under God's watch. And although they're difficult for the moment, they're actually part of God's plan for Joseph's life. To save many people, not only Joseph, but to save many people through Joseph. So the point of all this is to show us the great doctrine of providence. That all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And for you and I, what that means is this. If you have given your life to Jesus, if you've given your heart and become a child of God, when bad things happen to you, that does not mean that God has left you, doesn't mean God has abandoned you, that God isn't blessing you even. In fact, that very thing that's happening to you, because of God's providential love for you, it will be the very vehicle through which God is working out his plan for your life, for your ultimate good, and for his ultimate glory. So today what I encourage you to do, in wrapping this all up, I would say this. I encourage you, in light of these stories, to look to the cross. Look to Jesus and see in Jesus the fullness of God's love for you. And see in Jesus the fullness of God's grace towards you and I who don't deserve it. And see in Jesus the fullness of God's providential care for you. And as you see these things, I pray that your heart would swell with love for him and even greater devotion to him. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that your grace is bigger than our sin. Lord, we thank you that your grace is bigger than sinners. Lord, your providential love, your providential care, Lord, it's greater than our circumstances. And Jesus, I pray for everyone in here, I know there are some of us who are in very difficult circumstances. Lord, I pray you give them eyes of faith to see your providential care for them. Lord, help us to walk humbly before you. Help us to be recipients of your grace. Lord, help us to be those who whom you can bless because we're, we're laying down our pride and we're saying, Lord, I humble myself and I submit myself to you. Lord, you can even bless Judah if he does that. And Lord, we know you can bless us. We thank you that there's room in your family for even us. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name, amen.